Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, August the 7th, 2023. It is currently 1.08 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, I have to ask you a very important question. How was church yesterday? How was church? Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you dislike it? Did you hate it? Did you learn something? Here's even a more important question. In church yesterday, did you hear law or did you hear gospel? And if the law was presented, was gospel the thing given as the solution? How how was law and gospel properly distinguished in your church yesterday? And and all the sermons and all the teachings, Sunday school, did you hear a proper distinction of law and gospel or did you hear the total obliteration of a distinction between law and gospel? Now, I don't know how your day went at church. I have no idea. Feel free to tell me if you so desire. But man, by the time church was over for me yesterday, when I drove away from Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas, Sunday night after the evening service, I was emotionally, mentally, spiritually just wiped out. I was, I was just like, wow. I was like broken and, and it was just so much. There's so much in those. For those who don't know, we've been working in the book of Jeremiah. We spent three hours in the book of Jeremiah at Victory Baptist Church yesterday, working hard with theological issues, philosophical issues, textual, you name it. We worked a long time on the book of Jeremiah yesterday. Again, three hours. And by the time it was over, I was just like, I was exhausted in every way. I don't know if I've even recovered. That's probably why I haven't started broadcasting till after 1 p.m. here in West Texas, because I, I mean, wow, I'm still trying to figure it out because there was a lot going on there. But I do believe if, and I would challenge you, at least go back and listen to, I believe it's Jeremiah part 40. It's the last message I did on Jeremiah. That's the one from last night. We really got into law and gospel. We saw, because Jeremiah is filled with law, 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 law. Do this, do this, don't do this, do this. If you do this, you you could be destroyed. If you do this, you could be blessed. If you don't do this, and it's just law, 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 and judgment, 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 and death, and destruction, and threats. It's it's just filled with that in the book of Jeremiah. And we we understand, you know, that it's directed towards Judah, primarily Israel's obvi- obviously mentioned as well. We have the divided kingdom going on there, the north and the south, all of the things going on in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, we worked through it. And we also found ourselves confronted with some very serious issues. I mean, Sunday morning, we dealt with, you know, the whole concept in Romans 9 of vessels you know, made for honor and vessels made for destruction. I mean, that gets into some serious theological depth there. So we struggled through all of that. Not a pleasant topic, no matter how you look at it. So we worked through that. We also had to deal with kind of a a situation 
that was discussed in the last episode of this series. Because in this series, we're, we're once again looking at the subject of law and gospel. We are looking at the, we call this law and gospel redo because we started this series on law and gospel in October of 2022. We put, produced well over 90 out, 90 hours of content dealing with the proper distinction between law and gospel. We made it so far, felt that things kind of, we lost the plot a little bit. So we kind of restarting, redoing this. We're utilizing the audio from issues ETC as they're doing another, as they're working on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We would challenge you to subscribe to their podcast. That's issues ETC, issues ETC, wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll look for the ones that they call proper distinction of law and gospel. And you can listen to everything they have to say. Remember, they're using a book God's no and God's yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel. We're using the same book. So we, we've been doing that. But in the last episode, as we reviewed the audio from Issues ETC, they got into this very important conversation. Okay, okay. How do you know if someone is preaching the truth? How do you know where the truth is? How do you know who's preaching the word of God? How do you know? And their answer was really... It was a non-answer. It was just kind of like, you know, it was kind of the standard. We'll look to the scriptures and everybody says amen to that, but everyone looks to the scripture. You can go to a, you can look at them and say, they're false teachers. And they will say, no, our teaching is based off scripture. You're the false teacher. And then you would turn around and say, no, 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 no. Our teaching is based off scripture. Everyone uses scripture. Everyone thinks their interpretation is right. And they think anyone who doesn't agree with them is wrong. It's complete spiritual anarchy if you're even remotely honest with yourself. It is maddening and it's frustrating because if you, the reality is, and we talked about this in our study of Jeremiah because we were confronted with the same situation because Jeremiah is trying to preach the word of God. The people are not listening and they're like, We've got prophets. We've got priests. Why are we listening to you? Well, he's got the truth. Well, they, they think they think they have the truth. And so who has the truth? It, it's just, it's maddening. So we, we talked about it in Jeremiah. We talked about it in the last episode of Law and Gospel. And that entire situation, just dealing with that is, de- it's depressing. It's discouraging because when you boil it down, here's the reality of it. You know how you know that someone is preaching the word of God is when you agree with it. Meaning that what's the ultimate standard? You are the standard. We say it's the scriptures, but it's really you become the standard. You determine what's right. You determine what's wrong. Anyone who doesn't agree with you is just inherently wrong. And then you go find a church that agrees with you. And then that's a great church until you don't agree with it anymore. And now they are in the wrong. And But you are always in the right. <laughs> Now, sometimes you will realize you are in the wrong and change, change your view, but it's just, it's maddening. So on, on Law and Gospel in, in this series, in the last episode that we did, we dealt a little bit with that. It was frustrating. It was maddening. It was crazy. Also, we dealt with, uh, in our study in Jeremiah, we dealt with the proper distinction between law and gospel. And it was, once again, kind of just depressing and overwhelming just because of how many people don't get that proper distinction and how it places people under the law. And what we saw in Jeremiah is that when you are under the law, there is no hope. 
The reality is you're still going to return to your own devices. And the reality is you're still going to follow the imaginations of your evil heart. And so we talked about that, that reality. So the Jeremiah thing fit perfectly with this long gospel discussion. It all came together. There's a lot that's been very frustrating and discouraging, but all we can do is continue to press on. And I do believe dogmatically the Bible should be the final authority. I do believe that. The problem is we ultimately supplant that authority and we become the authority because it's based off what, how we interpret it. And then you have to go, well, then how should people interpret it? Well, then it gets down, are people really willing to do the work of actual biblical hermeneutics? Are people really willing to do the work of actual biblical interpretation? The problem is, even if you have people who are committed to biblical hermeneutics and actual interpreting the scripture, guess what? They won't even come to an agreement. So it's such a defeat. It it feels like a situation where there is no victory and there's no way to win. But we we have to be honest with those frustrations. And so we we they brought it up in the and and the audio we're reviewing for long gospel. It, we got confronted with it in Jeremiah. So so many of these issues are just coming together in all, multiple series and the Jeremiah series and the long gospel series. It's all there. And I, I love when it all kind of fits together as a puzzle. I do love that. But sometimes when it fits together and you look at the puzzle and you're like, I don't like what I see there. Um, yeah, that makes it more depressing. But you know what? Let's see if we can move to something more positive today, all right? So I don't know how church was for you. It was a little just, uh, wow, a little overwhelming for me. But hey, it's Monday. It's Monday afternoon. Let's try to advance this. So if you don't know, again, in the book, God's No and God's Yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel. It's made up of like 25 theses. Theses number four reads like this. This is theses number four. The true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scripture, but without this knowledge, Scripture remains a sealed book. C.F.W. Walther in the book, God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, asserts that, hey, without a correct understanding of the proper distinction between law and gospel, you you will, that's the only way you're going to understand the entire Bible. If you don't have the proper distinction between law and gospel, you cannot understand the entire Bible. And if you do not have a proper understanding of the proper distinction between law and gospel, the entire Bible remains a closed book and you will never fully understand it. Now, that's a massive claim. That's a massive thesis. Thesis. Now, most people of you, most of you, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people are currently listening. Many of you, I should say, I can't say most. Many of you will strongly disagree with that and say, no, 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 no. You can understand the Bible without understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel. I will at least argue. You may be able to understand a lot of the Bible, but without a proper distinction between law and gospel, the Bible appears to be a book of never-ending contradiction 
because this seems to contradict this. And you're, you're going to be trying to find, you're going to be offering a solution to a problem. And your solution is not really the solution to the problem because you're offering a law solution to a law problem when uh, you cannot fix a law problem with a law solution. The law problem doesn't need more law. It needs the gospel. So you have to have this proper distinction. So I think that the Bible will look like a never ending series of contradictions. Now, the problem is you'll come up with another way to answer those contradictions. But the way you will answer those contradictions typically is just to add more law (laughs) or to call into question someone's salvation or to throw people out of the kingdom of God. And I don't think that's that's not a, a, a historically, biblically accurate way of approaching it. So this is very important theses. Now, again, they spent the first part focusing on, well, how do we know the truth? They didn't really give a good answer. Let's hope here they now move on to thesis number four. Let's see what they have to say. Again, we're utilizing audio from Issues ETC. It's a radio program slash podcast, but they have commercials. So we're only reviewing segments between the commercials and here, and that, that makes these episodes a little bit shorter, but but I think it makes it, um, it offers a good refresher reminder of these issues pertaining to law and gospel that are absolutely essential. And thesis number four is saying they're so essential that without it, you can't understand the Bible. Let's see how they articulate this and let's try to benefit from it. We'll be obviously analyzing, critiquing, and uh, offering our own thoughts. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part four of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. So, Will, take us into the fourth thesis. Sure. The fourth thesis is that the true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light affording the correct understanding of the entire scripture, But without this knowledge, Scripture is and remains a sealed book. Which is a really sort of strong statement. But then he backs it up in a very compelling way by running through some Scripture, what appear to be contradictions on the most important question of all, how am I saved? So, listen. Turning the leaves of Holy Scripture while ignorant of the distinction between the law and the gospel, a person receives the impression that a great number of contradictions are contained in the Scriptures. In fact, the entire Scripture seemed to be made up of contradictions worse than the Quran of the Turks, the passage you read at the beginning. Now the Scriptures pronounce one blessed. Now they condemn him. When the rich youth asks the Lord, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The Lord replied, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. When the jailer at Philippi addressed the identical question to Paul and Silas, he received the answer, Well, believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. On the other hand, we read in Habakkuk 2, The just shall live by his faith. But then we note John in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 7 says, He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Over and against this, the apostle Paul declares, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. On the one hand, we note that scripture declares God has no pleasure in sinners. On the other, we find that it states, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
In one place, Paul cries, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. In Psalm 5, verse 4, we read, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall the evil dwell with thee. In another place, we hear Peter saying, Hope to the end for the grace that is brought to you. On the one hand, we're told that all the world is under the wrath of God. But then we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Another remarkable passage is 1 Corinthians 6, where the apostle first makes this statement, Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds, And such were some of you, but ye are washed. But ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Walter concludes then, Must not a person who knows nothing of the distinction between the law and the gospel be swallowed up in utter darkness when reading all this? Must he not indignantly cry out, What? That is to be the word of God? A book full of such contradictions. I had to read that whole paragraph because he just absolutely nails there this basic thing. And I think every Christian has this experience. You've had it, right, Todd? I mean, you're reading along and some passage from the law just strikes you terror in your heart, right? I mean, it just nails you. And and, and in that moment, it's really hard to remember the gospel. And then on the other hand, you do read a passage of comfort from the gospel and all of a sudden, It's like, I can be at peace. I know for certain that my Savior has paid for my sins. His blood has atoned for my sins. The promise of baptism saves me. So this experience. Okay, now, a lot there. I do agree. First of all, he says the promise of baptism saves us. Obviously, Lutheranism has baptismal regeneration, which I obviously reject completely and outright. That's a whole different issue that we could we could discuss. We've well, we've discussed in great length multiple times. So we're going to keep our focus where our focus needs to be here. All of those scriptures seem to provide an impossible contradiction. Now, everyone tries to work out their con contradiction, work out this contradiction to try to to solve it. And I think that their solution is incorrect. And I think the only correct way to resolve this conflict or this possible contradiction is a proper distinction between law and gospel. Let me explain. Over and over and over and over, you read in the Bible, it seems to say, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this in order to be saved. You're going to be judged according to your works. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do that. If you don't love, you won't be, you're not saved. If you don't obey, then you're not his. You, you got to do. And, and all of these passages are law, 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 law. Now, any reasonable, rational, honest person would look at all of these law passages and go, well, then I am condemned because I cannot do all of these things. I will not do all of these things. I fall short because these passages demand not only that you do them externally, you have to obey them internally. In fact, if you keep reading, you read things like you have to be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. You have to be holy as God is holy. If you read all of these, you're going to be like, "There, I don't know what to do. There's no way. But then you read all of these other scriptures that says, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You're like, well, wait a minute. 
do I believe and I'm saved or do I have to believe and do all of this? Well, you know, throughout church history, there's been lots of attempts to try to resolve this conflict, right? In fact, if there wasn't, if this apparent contradiction wasn't there, you wouldn't have then so many different denominations and churches because many of these denominations and churches are built on trying to resolve this apparent conflict. So you have some that say, yes, you have to have faith, but you must do this, 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 this in order to be saved. And if you don't do this and this and this enough, even if you are saved, you can lose your salvation. Those are attempts to try to work around this apparent contradiction. Hey, yeah, you can believe, but, but, but you've got to do the work. And if you don't do the work, you're going to lose your salvation. Others like, no, 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 no. You believe and are saved, but you have to do the work in order to prove that you are saved. And if you don't do enough work to prove that you're saved, then you were never saved. Now, the problem is with all of these approaches, this work kind of based approach, it, that they ha- you have to play down and water down the demands. You have to say, well, he's not calling for perfection, even though the scriptures are, are basically saying, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It is demanding perfection. So they have to water it down and go, no, no, no. As long as you're trying, as long as we see some kind of fruit, but they can't tell you how much fruit, they can't tell... But So you live in a perpetual state of fear, and to be honest, you're never going to know if you're truly saved because you have to get to the end of your life and go, okay, well, I think I did enough to prove it. That That's looking to yourself. That's looking to your works to prove that you're saved. That is a recipe for anyone honest that's going to lead you to a life of despair, depression, discouragement, and, if, and I think it will lead to deconstruction and giving up because you're just going to be like, I can't keep this standard. Now, a pro, a, the law gospel distinction offers a completely different solution. Don't water down those law passages. Embrace those law passages as demanding as they sound. Do not water them down. They are demanding because they're law and their job is to show you you can't do it. You will not do it. It's to show you your failure and it is to break you and condemn you. And then what you are to do, what do I do? Do I try harder? No, 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 no. You run to the gospel. And the gospel says, every one of those demands, be ye holy as God is holy. Christ did that for you. Be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Christ did that for you. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Christ did that for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ did that for you. Everything, uh, all of these commands are Christ did it for you. How do you obtain all of the things he did for you? By faith alone. His obedience is imputed to you, not infused, accredited to your account. So you now stand before God declared to be perfect, righteous, holy, obedient, even though you are not. So all the passages that say law, you should say, they say what they say, they mean what they mean, and woe is me, I am undone, there is no hope, I am condemned, I will continue to pursue my own devices, and I will continue to do that which is a part of the imaginations of my evil heart, because I am a sinner. What am I going to do? And then Christ says, I did it for you. 
I paid for your sin and my obedience is yours by faith. That's called the, we call this in theology, the doctrine of imputation. He imputes his obedience and righteousness to you by faith. So therefore, the the solution to this is the law is the law. The gospel is the gospel. Do not mix the two. Keep the proper distinction and the law will condemn you every single time. And the gospel will will give you comfort. But you you got to keep them different and distinct. Too many times, what everyone tries to do is bring these two together. I'm like, okay, that's a gospel passage, but, 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 but don't forget the law. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this because the law will prove whether you got the gospel, but that makes no sense. The gospel is God saving you because of what Christ did and because of an imputed righteousness. Law cannot prove imputed righteousness because it's imputed. It's accredited to your account. It's not because you actually are righteous or do anything righteous. But see, others take the law and gospel and want to add law, 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 law. No, don't add law to the gospel. Keep them distinct. The law is to show you, you don't, you can't, you will not, you never will. You're always going to fall short. And the gospel says, Christ did it for you. Believe on him, rest in him. And guess what? Everything those law passages demand, if you don't do this, you're not saved. Christ did it for me. If you don't do this, you're not saved. Christ did it for me. You're going to be judged according to your works. Praise God. The works of Christ are imputed to me so I can, you can judge my works. And guess what? Now what are my works? The works of Christ are now my works by faith. That is the only way to rightly distinguish between law and gospel, maintain the right theological distinction so that you, one, eliminate the contradiction in scripture, and two, you do not infect the gospel with the law. Because once you infect the gospel with the law, the gospel is no longer the gospel. It is something pretending to be gospel, but really it's nothing more than law that will only discourage, defeat, and destroy a person, or it will create a, uh, a a situation where you have to pretend to be more righteous than you are. It will create self-righteousness. It will create this sanctimonious, self-righteousness, judgmental, arrogant attitude because you got to constantly be comparing yourself to others to make yourself feel like you are doing it. And you got to pretend to be something that we know you're not internally, no matter how good you clean up the outside of the cup. All right, let's continue. Christians have is very, very uh, real and ongoing. And we need then to be able to know the distinction between these two doctrines and be able to sort of sit back and say, aha, that's the law talking there. And the law is not given to me for me to make myself righteous by it. The law is given to me that I can know my sin and see it and realize that I am completely unrighteous and then turn to my Savior and ask forgiveness. He also appeals to the history of the church as what he says, uh, an illustration of the importance of understanding the distinction between law and gospel. What does he say? I love this this statement. He says, uh, corruption entered the church when the law and gospel began to be confounded. And then he says, a perusal of the writings of the church father soon reveals the cause of the church's misery in those days. People did not know how to properly distinguish between law and gospel. But then a caveat, up to the 6th century, which includes the bulk of the fathers, uh, 
we still find glorious testimonies exhibiting this distinction. But from that time on, we notice that the light is growing dim and that the distinction is gradually forgotten. So that's, that's an interesting historical perspective. So up to the 6th century, even though we could see the possible obliteration of the two, it was still there. And then from the 6th century on, well, the, the distinction between law and gospel began to just utterly just fall away. Now, I will argue that in some ways the Reformation was supposed to bring back the proper distinction between law and gospel. But if you look at from the Reformation moving forward, the, the proper distinction between law and gospel was utterly 100% annihilated in almost every, it's really the only time you ever really hear about law and gospel is with Lutherans, okay? That's really about the only place. Now, some, some Reformed people will talk about it because they study Reformation history and they study Luther, but, and many other, and most of the evangelical world they don't, if you, if you went to your church and said, okay, let's talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel. I, I challenge you, walk into your Sunday school class and say, hey, small group, just, just stand at, at the back of the sanctuary. And when people come into church, say, hey, I got well, I'm doing a social experiment. Hey, let me ask you, what, what do you, what do you, do you understand what it means to form a proper distinction between law and gospel? I bet you 90% of the people look at you like you're out of your mind. They don't even know this exists. And when you start trying to explain it, they won't. All they're going to do is go, but, but, but the law, but, but, but the law, but, but, but all that. Because we're so, because of our sinful nature, we are law based. We are law minded. We're not gospel minded people. We are law minded people. And Christians uh, demonstrate that. You think we would be gospel minded, but our gospel is nothing more than law disguising itself as gospel, which is a major problem. So what I would actually like to do, if I could, is sort of walk through those centuries and just let a light shine from different time periods. So like at the end of the first century, right after the New Testament is written, you have Clement of Rome writing, similarly, we also who by his will have been called in Christ Jesus are not justified by ourselves or by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness, nor by such deeds as we've done in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which almighty God has justified all men from the beginning of time. Glory be to him forever. Amen. That's a pretty clear statement of the gospel according to Paul, and it depends upon a right understanding of the law and the gospel. Or, Moving into the second century, the anonymous epistle to Diognetus, by what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange! Oh, unsearchable operation! Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. You tell me that man doesn't have a beautiful understanding of what the gospel is and of the distinction between the law and the gospel. Oh, and by the way, this passage that I want to read now is from St. John Chrysostom, and one of our listeners had written to me about our show a little bit ago where I kind of disagreed with Walter on his read of Chrysostom. And our listener referred right back to this passage. It is one of my favorite passages in Chrysostom. 
it's on Philippians. Or no, I'm sorry, it's homilies on Romans 3. He says, to declare his righteousness. What is declaring of righteousness? Like the declaring of his riches, not only for him, for God, to be rich himself, but also to make others rich or of life. Not only that he himself is living, but that he makes the dead live and of his power. Not only that he's powerful, but that he makes the feeble powerful. So also is the declaring of his righteousness. Not only that he is himself righteous, but that he also makes them that are filled with the putrefying sores of sin suddenly righteous. And to explain this, that is what this declaring is, he added that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Don't doubt then. It's not of works, but of faith. And don't shun the righteousness of God. It's a blessing in two ways, because it's easy and also open to all men. And don't be abashed and shamefaced, for if he himself openly declares to do so, and he, so to say, finds a delight and pride therein, how is it that you're dejected and hide your face at what your master glories in? Isn't that just gorgeous? I think it is awesome to see some of these quotes. Now, I would only warn you about this. This is what I would warn you about. As someone who's read the church fathers, studied the church fathers, try, I've begged every Christian I know to read all of the church fathers. I'm always trying, read the church fathers, read the church fathers. Just always know. You can find one quote that sounds like, oh, wow, they get it. They understand. They, they believe just like me. And five seconds later, you'll read a quote going, what in the name of bubblegum is that? What are they talking about? Just remember, don't try to make the church fathers you. Don't try to make the church fathers your theology. Don't try to make the church fathers your denomination. The church fathers were, they were the church fathers. That's who they were. They were the, the Christians of that time uh, trying to understand theology and doctrine and the Bible from their perspective. We don't believe that they ha hold greater authority, but, but we, one thing we cannot do is people love to do this. If they hold to a certain doctrine and they want to say, my doctrine is right, they'll go find a, a quote from the church fathers and go, see, this proves I'm right. It doesn't prove anything. It just proves that you've got one quote from one church father that supposedly said something. Just continue. People do this a lot of time with the church fathers and say infant baptism. Well, look, 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 look. They said it and look at everything else they said about baptism. Go to our series on the, you know, the uh, baptism in the early church. We read from three historical documents, early church history. I mean, the craziness, the things they're saying about baptism, getting baptized in the nude and all of these other things, just crazy things. You're like, what is happening here? This whole thing is crazy. Well, guess what? Um, th that's the church fathers. They, they were they were the products of their time doing their best to figure out. Should we read them? Yes. Should we appreciate what they had to say? Yes. Just remember, don't just grab a quote and say, see, they believe what we believed. Who knows? Because if you were to walk up to them and go, hey, you had that amazing quote. You believe what I believe. And then you started articulating what you believe. They may look at you and go, get thee behind me, Satan. What are you talking about? You're not a Christian. Who knows what they would say? So I just, I don't like how the church fathers are utilized. We find quotes that agree with us and say, see, they believe. 
Look, any of those church fathers that he just quoted, go read all that they had to say. And you may not, I don't know if he's, they're so clear on law and gospels. I think they are. Everyone loves to use the church fathers. They're not there to be used. They're there to be read and understood for who they were. They're not to be used so that you can try to win a philological debate. They're not used so you can somehow say, well, my doctrine is older than your doctrine. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter, quote unquote, who, who believed what at what time period. The issue is, is the issue, is the theology in the scriptures. So we say the scriptures are the final authority and then we try to prove, well, my doctrine is right because I've got it earlier in church history. The issue is, is it in scripture? That's the issue. Now, great, you've got some church fathers who seem to be in agreement with you. Okay, and you and you and you now walk around with your chest, you know, puffed out, going, "Look, my, our view is was believed by the early church fathers." And let's go see how many things their church fathers believe that you don't agree with. So, if you can disagree with the church fathers on that issue, why can't I disagree with the church fathers on the issue you think somehow proves your point? The church fathers are who they were. Read them, understand them, appreciate them. Just know some of these quotes, they may sound great. And by all means, you can look up the quotes. Just remember this. Read the quotes that come before and read the quotes that come after. Because sometimes what you thought was, wow, this is so awesome. The next quote, you'll be like, what in the world? How, how could they say? You'll, you'll be somewhat baffled, perplexed, and confused. And everyone wants to use them. They're not there for you to use, for there for you to learn so you get insight to what was happening at that time in the early church. You should read all the the writings of this first seven ecumenical councils. You should read everything. By all means, read anything you can. Just note, everyone tends to approach the church fathers with an agenda. And I'm not a fan of that. I think, though, perhaps the, the clearest witness is in the 5th century when, according to Walther, the light's beginning to get a little bit dimmer. But listen to Chrysologus here. He's the Bishop of Ravenna. He died in about 450. We're not sure exactly when he wrote this sermon. Both of them, that is, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's preaching on Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them, it says, were righteous in the sight of God. Righteous in the sight of God. But what about the passage that says, no living person will be counted righteous in your sight? Perhaps in the sight of human beings, one may be thought to be righteous, since human beings, aware as they are of their sins of the body, are equally unaware of the vices of people's minds. But in God's sight, before whom the secrets of the heart are laid bare, by whom hidden thoughts do not go unnoticed, who is judged innocent and righteous, is there a human being who does not sin in heart, who doesn't have a bad thought? who's not guilty of harboring doubts, who doesn't incur blame through fear. Moses doubts. Aaron goes astray. Peter denies. So who is righteous? And how are they both righteous in the sight of God? In the sight of God, yes, but by means of God, both righteous in the sight of God, not by their effort, but by grace. Listen to the apostle. They're justified gratuitously, through the grace of Christ. And again, not from ourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, lest anyone boast. Yet again, what do you have that you did not receive? But if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Therefore, this is more or less what the evangelist is saying. Not that they did not have righteousness, but that they received it. Not that it was earned, but that it was bestowed. Beautiful. Now, Walter had sort of set the cutoff date in the 6th century. I think what's kind of fascinating is that in the 6th century, we have the uh, Council of Orange take place. And I don't think Walther ever references this in any of his works, at least not that I've seen. It may have been under his radar, if you will. But that council was very, very clear. Let me just give a little bit from it. This was in uh, 529. And thus, according to the passages of Holy Scripture quoted above, or the interpretation of the ancient fathers, we must, under the blessing of God, preach and believe as follows. The sin of the first man has so impaired and weakened free will that no one thereafter can either love God as he ought or believe in God or do good for God's sake unless the grace of divine mercy has preceded him. We therefore believe that the glorious faith which is given to Abel, the righteous, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the saints of old, and which the Apostle Paul commends in extolling them in Hebrews 11, was not given through natural goodness as it was before to Adam, but was bestowed by the grace of God. And we know and also believe that even after the coming of our Lord, this grace is not to be found in the free will of all who desire to be baptized, but it's bestowed by the kindness of Christ. This has already been frequently stated, and as the Apostle Paul declares, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. And again, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And as the apostle says of himself, I've obtained mercy to be faithful. He did not say, because I was faithful, but to be faithful. And again, what do you have that you did not receive? So, you... I would only warn that the Council of Orange, you got to be careful there, right? Just because you read something that says... God gives you this or gives you that. You got to make sure we understand what they mean by that. Are they saying he gave you righteousness by imputing it, accrediting it to your account? Or are they hinting in any way of an infused righteousness? The reason you're faithful is because God gives you faithfulness. He infuses it into you. Now, you still may be giving God credit, but infused versus imputation is the entire reason there was a Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church teaches you're infused with it. We teach you that it's imputed. We are declared to be righteous. It's accredited to our account, but we are still not righteous. We are still sinners. So some of those quotes, you got to really read and go, now, are they, are they talking about it being infused or are they talking about it being imputed? Are they talking we're made righteous in our position? Or are they talking we're made righteous in our practice? You got to really read that. So he just kind of took that from the Council of Orange. And I think you probably want to do a little bit more reading there before you're definitive there. Just again, you can take these individual quotes and isolate them from the, a larger council or from a church father. And I sometimes don't know if it's an accurate representation of everything those people believed and thought. You can hear already in the proceedings of this council a very, very clear 
upholding of the necessary distinction between law and gospel when it comes to the matter of justification. The way that that it's spoken of in the Council of Orange makes it very clear that the distinction was still very much alive and brightly burning for those fathers. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part four of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And this Monday, June the 12th, we'll continue our conversation with him. We're talking about thesis four of the proper distinction. Then in hour two of issues, etc. We'll look forward to Sunday morning, the third Sunday after Pentecost with Pastor Sean Denzer. Okay, we'll have to stop right there. Um, I, again, I would challenge you. I mean, I, they didn't do much here with the thesis. They, they wanted to try to demonstrate that the proper distinction between law and gospel has been something that was shown in church history from, say, the beginning, quote unquote, we'll say it this way, the beginning of Christianity to, say, the sixth century. And then after the sixth century, the proper distinction between law and gospel was somewhat kind of it just fell apart, and then it was kind of brought back at the time of Luther, Melanchthon, that, that time period there in the 1500s. I will just say, I don't know, again, quoting some of those church fathers, he's reading it clearly with a very specific lens, that they, they see the proper distinction between law and gospel, and especially the Council of Orange. I, I, I was going to pull something up here. Well, well, maybe next time we'll come back to it. I would challenge you to do a little work on the Council of Orange. I'm just not so sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're moving away. By the time you get to the Council of Orange, I think you any supposed proper distinction between law and gospel, I think you're moving away from it. And I think the church is definitely moving towards an infused righteousness, not an imputed righteousness mindset, which is going to dominate Roman Catholicism. I mean, that's 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 Roman Catholicism 101, infused, not imputed. The, the correct way is, the correct way to understand it is imputed righteousness. We... When you believe in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. You are declared to be perfect, holy, and righteous in your position, in your practice. You are still a sinner. You still possess a sinful nature, and you will constantly fall short. So therefore, the law can never be used to justify imputed righteousness because law can't can't prove that you have imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is given to your account. It's not, it can't, it's not seen. That's why the church almost always, even non-Catholics, they almost always start talking in a very Catholic way. I, I, I've joked before, and, and even for those who don't know, you know, I, I enrolled in a Catholic university to pursue a degree in Catholic theology just because I got tired of hearing people within the non-Catholic world say things about Catholicism, demonstrating they didn't really understand it and didn't know what they were talking about. But I, I found it funny that in, in the Catholic university, many times they would say, you Protestants are more Catholic than we are. You claim you believe in imputed righteousness, but you guys teach infused righteousness all over the place. You teach it here and there. They, like they, they just basically mocked our idea that we were like, hey, you believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. Y'all say that, and then you turn around and go, but if you don't do this and 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 this, either you lose your salvation or you were never saved. You're looking for a, a practical manifestation of righteousness. Well, that doesn't come from an imputed one. That would have to come from an infused one. So then they were like, you're saying the same thing we're saying. And I'd be like, I'm not saying what you're saying, okay? I'm not. I reject infused righteousness. I don't believe that's the way it works. Because if it did, then 
well, maybe we would stop sinning, but we continue to sin, 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 sin. My salvation is based off what Christ did for me, imputed, not infused. I mean, just read the London Baptist Confession. I think the Westminster draws the same distinction. This was very much a part of the early Reformation. If my justification is determined by an imputed righteousness, you cannot judge my justification based off practical righteousness. It is judged by the, and you say, well, all of these passages that says, if you don't do this, and if you don't do this, and if you don't do this, and if you don't do this, you're no, you're basically not a Christian. And I would say amen to all of those passages. Christ did it for me. That's the whole point of imputed righteousness. Because if I start looking to all of those things to somehow prove if I'm saved, I'm going to find out every single time that I'm not saved if I'm even remotely honest. That then leads people to water down these scriptures and say, well, it's not perfection. It's just direction. It's just as long as you're trying. No, those scriptures don't say as long as you try. Jesus says, be ye perfect as my heavenly father, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be ye holy as God is holy. It doesn't say try. Without holiness, no one will see God. And all of those scriptures are law. And they should say, well, then you should say, what do I do? Christ, the gospel. And the gospel says, it's all been done for you. Rest. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. All the righteousness the law demands, Christ met that. And by faith, he imputed it to you. That is the only right way to truly, truly understand this. And if you don't understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, you will, look, the Bible will be a a book of contradictions. You then will work to resolve those contradictions, but guess how you will resolve the contradictions? You will bring in law. You will allow law to infect your gospel, to to such a degree that your gospel is no longer a gospel, it is law masquerading as a gospel, which then will only lead your people to becoming self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental, condemning, and unwilling to see their own sin because they will pretend to be more godly than they are because they got to somehow prove that they're saved by what they do instead of trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and being humbled by such mercy and grace and and allowing the law to show them their sin every single day and be willing to admit it. Being willing to admit it like, hey, I am condemned and I'm going to go back to what we preached on yesterday at Victory Baptist Church. And I would challenge you, please go back and listen to the sermon from last night on Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 12. Jeremiah 18, verse 12. This is any anyone who will take their life and are honest and will lay it next to the perfect law of God. This is what you're going to say. Jeremiah 18, 12. And they said, there is is no hope. If you take your life, no matter how godly you think you are, and you compare it to God's law, you're going to be, there is no hope. And then if you're even remotely honest, you will say the following words. You will admit, we will walk after our own devices. You know that even no matter how much you look at the law, no matter how hard you try, there's going to be there over and over. You're going to walk after your own devices and we will everyone do the imaginations of his evil heart. Your evil heart 
you're going to follow. You're going to go out. You're going to, you're going to fall short over and over and over and over. And once you realize this, there is no hope. I'm going to continue to go after my own devices. I'm going to continue to follow my, the imaginations of my evil heart. What can I do? Then the gospel comes along. The sweet, beautiful gospel and say, you can't trust in Christ who did. He took care of it all for you. And in Christ, you're now perfect, righteous, holy, and obedient. Rest in there. And when you read the Bible and you see a verse that's law, you say, there is no hope. I am condemned. Woe is me. I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. I'm evil. I, I, I don't deserve anything. Acknowledge, let, it, let it crush you. Let it truly do its work. And then when it does that work, you go, but thank God for Jesus Christ, the only begotten son, the eternal begotten son who came, who kept the law on my behalf, who died for me, I will find rest in there. And then from that gratitude that arises from such a glorious gospel, then hopefully you seek to follow Christ because of gratitude, not because you have to prove something. You can't prove imputed righteousness with your actions. Because if you try to do that, your actions will always prove you're not saved because God's law demands perfection, internal and externally. In church history, there's no question the proper distinction between law and gospel, no matter how present you may, we could debate how present it was early on. I think by the time you get to the Council of Orange, especially after you get to the past the sixth century, it just seems to be gone obliterated. And then you have infused righteousness, not imputed righteousness as basically the the law of the land through Roman Catholicism. And then, and the Reformation, the proper distinction between law and gospel reemerges. And then as we move forward into, you know, the form the, uh, America and Puritan, Puritanism and evangelicalism and all of the other things that came out of American Christianity or well, Puritanism started somewhere else. But as it comes to America, and you, you understand the history there, and as it all, you'll start seeing obliteration of law and gospel. Oh, and, and in fact, you see the obliteration of law and gospel, I say, not long, not, not, not long even after Luther, because we're law-minded people. We're law-based people. And we want a law-based Christianity. No matter how much people say they don't, they want a law-based Christianity. It's law, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Our sermons are law, 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 law. Now, the law has to be preached. And the law should show you your sin, condemn you, and the gospel gives you hope. And then from the hope of the gospel, because you know you're eternally secure, then out of gratitude and love, we should seek to then to pursue what God calls us to do, knowing we're never going to come close to doing it the way we're supposed to. All right. The next time we will continue. Remember, we are listening to audio from Issues ETC. You can find their podcast wherever you get your podcast. You should be a subscriber to Issues ETC. No, it's coming to you from a Lutheran theological perspective, which I obviously strongly disagree with their view on baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. But you can listen to it and, uh, well, we'll pick it up next time and see if we can, uh, we can move forward. We can move forward. They're taking, they're going really slow through this thesis. Uh, this thesis. And remember, the thesis is uh, thesis number four, and I'll just read it to you one more time. Again, this is from, from the book, God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. 
this is the thesis number four, all right? The true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light, affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scripture, but without this knowledge, Scripture is and remains a sealed book. We have a lot of work to do on this thesis. Let's hopefully they'll get a little bit more into it in the next episode, or not the next episode, the next segment, and we will possibly do that. May, I don't know if we'll do it later today. We'll probably wait till tomorrow. We got some other broadcasts we probably should do today, so we'll try to get to those. But uh, there you go. And go listen to what we did last night in Jeremiah because it very much is connected. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. You can email me always. News. I-F at yahoo.com. That's the word news. The letter I is in India. F is in Frank at yahoo.com. News. I-F at yahoo.com. I always look forward to hearing from those who want to email. All right. Everyone have a great day. God bless.